Hello, and thank you for joining us today on HIV Reimagined. I'm Dr. Shafiq Asaji. I'm the Senior Advisor for HIV with UNICEF. And as you know, here at HIV Reimagined, we're all about having conversations that talk about the changes that we've been seeing in health and HIV services. What is already being done differently in healthcare, and what could it mean for the future of HIV? And today we have a great conversation lined up for you. It's a little different to the usual episodes because today we want to take a deep dive into innovations in diagnostics. Now, there's so much to talk about testing models, the different technologies, the barriers to implementing those technologies, stigma and linkage to care, the list goes on. And so for today's episode, we have a great guest lined up who can talk to us about all of these different aspects of the diagnostic landscape. He's also an old friend uh, and he's someone who has been there at the front line of the HIV epidemic for more than 20 years. So welcome, Trevor Peter. Uh, Good morning, Shafiq. Thank you. Trevor is actually head of diagnostics at the Clinton Health Access Initiative based in Washington, D.C. And when we thought of someone who could take us through this whole journey of diagnostics, Trevor, you were the person who immediately came to mind. And I should add, we worked together in the early years from about 2005 onwards, trying to figure out really how HIV services could be delivered within low and middle income countries. And an important piece of that was the diagnostic story. Trevor, I, I don't know if you recall those early days, but mm. certainly it felt like, you know, we were trying to talk to people armed with a laptop, the most basic of tools about how we could really scale up services. And it, it felt at times like we were beating our heads against the wall. But when I think back to the quality of services that we have in place today, I think it's really extraordinary how far we've come from those early days. Completely agree, Shafiq. It is extraordinary. You know, the past 20 years has seen a transformation in, in global health. And where we sit today, we sometimes forget just how different things were back then. And you're right, it was, it was definitely a different time. I'm thinking back to those early years when, I guess in the early 2000s, when even at that point, you know, the HIV pandemic had been raging for almost 20 years. If you compare that to COVID-19 and how that raged, uh, and it's still raging on, but for two very intense years, uh, it, was, it was absolutely exhausting for everyone in, in many different ways. You consider HIV that had been, as a disease, as a, as a global pandemic, had been impacting so many people's lives, either as you know, healthcare providers or people and their families. Uh, for so many years before we entered that phase in the early 2000s when there was this, uh, this new hope of uh, uh, the potential for lower costs and effective antiretrovirals and the associated diagnostics that you need to go with them. It was so, we were sort of just starting out uh, there at that point. So I, I remember them and I had to spend a little bit of time, you know, just thinking recently, thinking of those early days and, and, and the early memories. And there were indeed a lot of frustrations, but also a lot of positive outcomes and a lot of successes too. It, it certainly was a very exciting time. And I think it's easy to forget that one of the reasons why we were able to respond to COVID 
in such an effective and such a rapid way was precisely because of all the work and all the investment that had gone into health systems and diagnostic systems because of the work that we did in HIV for all those decades. Later on in this program, we're going to hear about a digital booth that is driving remarkable increases in testing and improving linkages to care, uh, and also eliciting some surprising and very useful user feedback. But I think before we jump into that, uh, I wanted to take us back, Trevor, to where it all started. Remind us, what really did HIV testing look like in those early days when we were first trying to figure out how to address the challenges that the HIV epidemic brought us? So in many ways, when I think back over the last 20 years, I, um, in my mind, I think about sort of four phases and we're sort of on now embarking, we're on the the brink of embarking upon the fifth phase. I also respect the fact that prior to the last 20 years, there were, you know, diagnostics existed and it had, there was a lot done then. So I'm not discounting any of that. But certainly in my experience, what I've seen over the last 20 years in this current area of global health, particularly around HIV, is that there were these four phases. The first phase being that initial response and the, the need to construct the basic laboratory capacity to enable antiretroviral treatment to be scaled up. So testing had to be scaled up, laboratories had to be built, people had to be trained, uh, both clinicians and, op- and test operators and so on. Funding had to be found to buy equipment and, and reagents and so on. So there, that was and that was for HIV in general. And most of that was focused on adult treatment because for infants, for children, your treatment options were much thinner. And that was that went on for like maybe four or five years. Um, but of course, during that period, pediatric treatment options became more and more available, and the need to diagnose infants was becoming paramount. And so the second phase, in many ways, was a focus on children and getting the diagnostic capacity set up there. And that phase was also important because it was foundational from the perspective of setting up nuclear acid testing. For the first time in many countries, nuclear acid testing suddenly became available, and that was that went on for maybe in a sort of you know four or five years in that sort of initial push to set up that infrastructure. The third phase, in my mind, I sort of characterize it as the phase of the shift away from the laboratory. So after a decade or so of building this infrastructure for HIV diagnostics and setting up laboratories, there were now technologies becoming available that would take, for example, CD4 testing and PCR testing for infants. There were now technologies that could do that, not in a big laboratory but at what we call the point of care, the smaller machines, sort of toaster or microwave-sized machines that could be deployed much more widely and used by, not necessarily by a skilled-trained laboratory expert, but by nurses or healthcare workers and so on. And there was a big push then to establish the infrastructure. Uh, and so everything I described earlier about having to buy machines and buy testing supplies, the reagents, train people, getting health facilities set up to run these tests, that entire operation that was there was a sort of drive and push to expand that across you know thousands of health facilities, um, and that that was the third phase. The fourth phase is of course the COVID nineteen phase, which was uh, shorter. And that's not to say that COVID nineteen is over, but it was the time when COVID nineteen really you know, was a threat and destabilized you know uh, testing for HIV. People weren't going into health facilities. Testing laboratories were being taken over by COVID testing, and other tests were getting deprioritized and so on. 
but through that phase, the, I think the resilience, the, all the investment that had gone into setting up the laboratories for HIV and the testing networks and systems, th- those were good investments. And a lot of, there was a lot of resilience within that, the HIV testing infrastructure and systems that there was a bounce back and a recognition that HIV testing could be done side by side with COVID testing. COVID testing relied on the infrastructure that the HIV programs had set up. And similarly, the HIV program started to sort of draw on the lessons and learnings of how to improve services um, from COVID-19. So that's, it was a phase in its own, I think has also provided a bit of a boost to take us into the fifth phase, which is where we are right now, where we are looking at innovations in service delivery, faster turnaround time, greater use of self-tests, improved data systems, also potentially even cheaper assays. And these are all benefits that have come out of the fourth phase and the experience of COVID-19 that will, I think, benefit HIV testing programs in the coming years, as well as uh, the potential for multiplex testing and so on and so forth, the new technologies. So that brings us to, the, to this fifth phase. And there are uh, lots of exciting innovations in both systems as well as technologies that uh, I think we can see coming into greater use in the coming years. Thank you, Trevor. We're going to touch on each of those phases, but let's go back to phase one, to the very beginning of the HIV epidemic and to the beginning of our thinking around the importance of diagnostics in the context of HIV. So in those early days, and here I'm talking about the early 2000s when HIV testing, the basics of HIV testing had been worked out in in previous years. Back then, in many countries, the status was really the most that one could get was uh, uh, an HIV rapid or an HIV test, whether it was a rapid test or a test that was done in a laboratory. And to be quite frank, most of the testing for HIV for diagnosis uh, within adults relied on a laboratory test. And this was you know, 1999 to the year 2000, 2001. The, the wider range of tests that we are so comfortable with or we, we expect to be available today uh, simply were not, were not around. Uh, partly it may have been because you know, treatment was not accessible. And so, the di- so diagnosis was the first step and maybe there were few interventions basically. There was few things that one could do to take care of people with HIV. And so diagnosis was, that was the main test. And most investment and most efforts within public uh, laboratory systems went into it and tried to ensure that was available. But it was very fundamental, very rudimentary. Uh, it was laboratory-based and so not really accessible to many people. Of course, things have changed since then, but it was, we were at the foothills. Back in those days, the number of sites that had a large laboratory that could do this kind of testing were, were few and far between. So for the majority of people, getting access to even a diagnosis that they were living with HIV was really quite a challenge because you you had to get to a hospital, you had to give blood, uh, the blood had to be processed in a laboratory, uh, and all of that took time and was quite limited by the resources that were available. You're absolutely right. You know, there, there weren't many laboratories that could run the test. Often they were in capital cities. It was really quite inaccessible. The cost was also high. It was a real barrier. And I think it's worth recognizing that for kids especially, you know, you and I were working together on the 
pediatric HIV program that was uh, being supported by the Clinton Health Access Initiative. Uh, and at the time, one of the very significant challenges we faced was around the fact that even if you had kids that you knew were likely to be uh, HIV infected, that their mothers were living with HIV, they were showing signs and symptoms of HIV-related conditions, it was a real challenge testing them because especially in the younger babies, you needed specialized services, uh, uh, specialized technologies to be able to make a diagnosis of HIV. You're absolutely right. In fact, today, even still, the only way to diagnose HIV in a child, an infant under 18 months of age, is through the use of a nucleic acid test. And back in those early days, the available tests were really being only used for research. There were no commercially available tests that were licensed for use for actual diagnosis, for clinical diagnosis. Often there were laboratories that were using these tests for research purposes and starting to expand and doing their best to extend that for clinical diagnosis in order to provide as much testing as possible for infants. But it was a real challenge. Despite those challenges, we, we built a program around uh, some of these tests that were technically only for research use. Uh, and I think that that actually helped to push industry and say, look, these tests are being used. We need to improve their quality and make them more accessible and, and make them fit for the purpose of diagnosing children because the needs were tremendous. Half of the kids that were exposed to HIV uh, and infected through mother-to-child transmission um, were dead by the end of the second year, in those early years of the epidemic. So we, we needed to act. We had uh, limited resources and limited technology available to us. But the failure of, of acting on even what we had available uh, was too significant for us to ignore it. Now, of course, things have changed very dramatically since then. And for you, what would you say are some of the most significant evolutions in the diagnostic landscape since those early days of testing? The only tests available back in the early days were, were sort of simple antibody-based tests, uh, often conducted in the laboratory. And one of the most significant developments was to shift the diagnosis for adults out of the laboratory into, into the community, or certainly to decentralize it down to every level of health facility and even in standalone facilities and uh, through the use of rapid tests. So taking this uh, immunological test, putting it onto a little dipstick or strip so that it can be used. And now, today, that has evolved to the point where there are self-tests, as many of us know, where you can test yourself at home. And so that's, that's an incredible evolution in technology and also service delivery and access as well for, for people to be able to diagnose themselves. So consider the difference between having to maybe travel hundreds of kilometers to get to a laboratory uh, and uh, get, you know, get your test done or maybe having to wait weeks or months to get a result back to where we are today where you can buy an HIV test at a pharmacy, you test yourself immediately as and where you want or get a test anywhere you want within, with any health facility that's so much more accessible. Well, Trevor, on that point, we thought it would be great to hear from someone who can tell us about the difference that self-testing has made to them. Here's Wendy, a peer educator and counsellor from Abidjan in Côte d'Ivoire, to tell us more about the difference that self-testing or auto-testing has made to her and her community. 
my name is Wendy. We work down here in um, Abidjan by sex work. Autotex is good and it has made a very great change in my life because it is always good for someone to know how you are feeling, to know how your health is. Since uh, Autotex was uh, introduced, it has made everything easy. It is very easy to run text to the people that need it. Like most of the girls, they are scared of needles. Like they don't want them to inject them or a syringe to collect their blood. Most of them, they are always scared to go to the hospital. It makes them look uncomfortable. You understand my point? There are some doctors that attend to them like in a harsh tone and they don't like it. There are some, they take their time. They take their time. Like sometimes they will tell you to wait. Maybe you get there as at 11. They will tell you to wait till 3 p.m. before they will attend to you. The girls will not want to wait. They are not happy. They will tell me they paid their transport all the way from their house to this place and now they are telling them to wait and all that. They are really not happy with it. The cost of transportation too is added to it. They will tell you the transport to go to that area is too much. It's been very difficult to get a taxi. Like there was a day, was it not two weeks back, I took a girl to the hospital. When she gets to the hospital, she was feeling dazing. So I was like, what is wrong with you? She said she don't like coming to the hospital. There are some people, when, when you start using the auto text for them, they will like, wow, interesting. It is easy. It is easy for them to use. It is easy for them to assess. Like, they love it. Because most people never believe there is auto text. When you bring it to their doorstep and when they use it, even they will be the one to one call the others to come and they will tell them, ah, they are doing an HIV text free of charge and they are using auto text. It is very easy. They will even be the one to assist me in doing it. When the result is coming out, it's within the girl that has the result and the person that runs the text. So it's, a, it's private. It's not everybody that is going to see the results. It's for the person that did the test alone. There are some patients that they want to know if you are positive or negative. They want to pick an eyes into your results to know how you how the result is. Because some patients, when they see your results, they will go out there and say to someone else's ear, this person is positive. So it's not good. So when they do it private, it's really okay. Thank you, Wendy. So the benefits of self-tests are clear. Privacy, cost, accessibility, and being able to test in a way that is more comfortable for the user. Trevor, back to you. You're about to tell us about the second way that HIV testing has changed. Tell us more. The second way in which HIV testing has changed has been through the introduction of nuclear acid tests. In many ways, global health as a whole, its first exposure or experience with nuclear acid testing within public sector on a large scale was through the implementation of this early infant diagnostic. In those early days, as access to pediatric HIV care expanded, what needed to happen was the establishment of laboratories. So across maybe almost every country that was tackling the HIV crisis, laboratories were set up that could do nuclear acid testing. And that was foundational 
for the subsequent introduction of HIV viral load, which used the same laboratories and the same instrumentation and systems. And then, of course, recently with COVID-19, those same laboratories were then used for COVID-19 PCR testing. So that the evolution of nucleic acid testing had its foundation in early infant diagnosis and laboratories, hundreds of laboratories set up across the world. Those laboratories became a central part of diagnostics uh, in, in global health today, not only for HIV, but also for COVID-19. They're also used increasingly for TB testing as well as hepatitis testing, HPV testing for cervical cancer as well, and so on. That is an incredible story, really. The, the legacy of these tests that were used for diagnosing children is still being felt today in the way in which we've responded to uh, the COVID pandemic, among others. What do you see as the impact of HIV diagnostics on this COVID response? How important really was that early work to what we now take for granted with respect to COVID? Oh, it was um, foundational, transformational. It was essential. In fact, if the investment hadn't been made to set up and scale up the required diagnostics for HIV. And that infrastructure for diagnostic testing was not set up across so many different countries, within public systems, within private systems, and those new technologies that were introduced for HIV. That had not been set up over the past 15 to 20 years. We would have had a very difficult time responding to COVID-19. And so it took a lot of time and effort. You know, Shafiq, I remember time we spent working together, painstakingly supporting different efforts to get HIV rapid tests implemented, then early infant diagnosis tests, uh, CD4 tests, uh, which, as you know, are still very important today. But the PCR or the nucleic acid tests, um, just that capacity, if that hadn't been set up, I think our response to COVID would have been quite difficult. While it took us maybe 10, took the, the world, should I say, over you know, 10 years to set up all that infrastructure. I, imagine if we had to spend years setting up the infrastructure to, to respond to COVID-19. We certainly wouldn't be where we are today with COVID uh, pandemic without all of that access to testing and the, the technological investments that had been made. But I, I wonder, do you feel as if the COVID pandemic gives us an opportunity to kind of re-engineer our approach to diagnostics and to healthcare in, in, in general? Well, I can say that diagnostics for COVID-19 uh, was like diagnostics on steroids. And so <laughs> for sure, we were able to leverage all of the infrastructure and the investment that had been set up for, for HIV to support the COVID response. COVID-19 taught us a lot more. And it is kind of interesting because in the year or two before COVID, we thought we were doing pretty good in HIV diagnostics. You know, the rapid tests were out there. We were starting to experiment and explore self-tests. Getting self-tests into use was taking a while. We were doing studies and we were piloting and experimenting and looking at the feasibility and so on. And uh, all a very good process, but you know, over a number of years. Similarly, you know, we'd set up labs for viral load and early infant diagnosis, there were still significant gaps in access. Test turnaround times was, you know, weeks or sometimes months. And it was viewed as a problem. But in some ways, there wasn't as much urgency to try and address that. Now, imagine having to wait weeks or months for a COVID test. It would have been considered unacceptable. Imagine having to spend several years researching whether self-testing, COVID self-testing, was a feasible approach and whether we should use it or not. 
it would have been unacceptable. So COVID-19 has taught us that we can move faster. We can do more. We can be more aggressive or more proactive in how we build access to diagnostics and ensuring the right quality of services from a patient perspective. With COVID-19, there was, it would, it, there was no space to, uh, to not be efficient, to be low cost, to be fast, and for diagnostics to be accessible. And we did that. We came to that realization and we implemented systems for that very rapidly. I think we need to take that back into the HIV world and frankly into, into other diseases, TB and cervical cancer, hepatitis, and so on, that rely on similar diagnostic services and approaches and, and bring the same degree of urgency, the same degree of quality of service, the savings, et cetera, and so back into those diseases. Certainly for HIV, I think there's more we can do. I think the evolution of rapid tests with high sensitivity and specificity that allowed you to get a result within minutes really transformed the way we were able to manage COVID, uh, to manage quarantine, um, and eventually to lift the lockdowns and, and allow people to go back to leading normal lives. And I think one of the most remarkable innovations is the accessibility of self-testing for COVID. You know, as you, as you mentioned earlier, we'd already developed self-tests for HIV. And there were many studies looking at implementing HIV self-tests in the field what kinds of, of, of clients was it appropriate for? What were some of the challenges uh, that might happen when you give people a test for HIV and ask them to do it on themselves? What happens if that test result is positive? How do you ensure that the test is accurate and that people follow up with, with services? It sort of brings us to the discussion around what next? The, um, the evolution of technologies will allow many more assays and tests to become accessible to people in a much more democratic way. It does pose a lot of challenges. In some cases, that may be, that's very positive overall for patient care and health outcomes. In some cases, it may create some confusion or may create maybe some negative outcomes. And I don't know that we've worked out all the kinks there, for example, people take on more of the testing themselves and do test and self-screen and self-diagnose, whether there would be, for example, the right level of uh, referral into care. Would, would patients know where to go? Would they know what the next step is? You know, would that information be available? Uh, would they all refer into care? Or would we see a lot of drop-off? These are questions which I don't think are really answered yet, but it's inevitable that we, will, we have to embark upon this road. I am a diagnostician. I deeply believe for everyone, it's a right to know your health status for every potential parameter. And that knowledge is an important aspect of uh, you being able to make decisions or be able to make decisions about how you would then proceed and access care, whether it's in the public sector or the private sector. Um, that's important. But I think the mechanisms and the systems would need to adapt now to, to come around people to provide the associated follow-on services so that they can get the follow-on care. Because a test by itself, while it's important for that knowledge. Obviously, if it's not acted upon, there's a diagnosis of a disease that does require following care. If that's not acted on, then the outcome is not positive. The test is uh, useless in and of itself without the care that we need to provide. Well, not entirely useless, I would say. Just simply knowing your, your status is important for, for many, many diseases, for every disease probably. There's value there. 
It doesn't alter the outcome, simply knowing the result, unless you can uh, get the follow-up services to be able to uh, access the care that you need. That's the perfect segue really to our next guest, because here at HIV Reimagined, we're really all about looking at how to do things differently. So we've spoken to someone who has spent the last 10 years innovating in the digital space to see if we can use digital technologies to actually improve those outcomes from HIV self-testing. I'm uh, Dr. Musad Abrams. I'm the CEO of Avido Health. I have a background in HIV for the last 20 years. And for the last four years, we've been focusing on Pocket Clinic, which supports patients through health journeys and linkage to care. Dr. Abrams originally started out looking at how to provide digital counseling alongside self-testing kits. But that quickly evolved when a partner came to Aviro Health with a problem. They were sending out hundreds of thousands of HIV self-testing kits in Johannesburg, but only getting around a 1% to 2% reporting of the results. So they posed a big question to Aviro. Could someone take a kit, go home, watch a how-to video in an app and report the results and, and get linked to care along the way. Aviro Health took up the challenge and started off by piloting a link to a, a WhatsApp automated chat alongside the mail out test kits in Kenya. And that led to a significant increase in reporting. Rates went up to 30%. They realized that they still had a long way to go. The learnings that we got through all of these earlier projects was that patients really appreciated convenience. So whatever was faster was better. The second part was around privacy. And and one of the things that we understood from that was that, you know, even though we think that a take-home test is private, with the patients that we're working with, it's often not private. So this is where we first had the idea and we were also approached by John Hopkins and Autumn in, in Johannesburg around facility and booth-based testing. You know, so we went from a progressive web app for take-home testing, you know, WhatsApp chatbot for take-home testing, and then facility-based testing of HIV self-test kits. And that idea is where the pocket clinic comes in. These are multi-language self-testing booths, which can be outside healthcare services and that use an app, the Pocket Clinic app, to walk a user through the HIV self-testing process, as well as offer standardized counseling based on the results, and if needed, link the users to care. The Pocket Clinics enable users to get tested, get connected to care without needing to negotiate any of the long queues at health facilities, or indeed interface with staff that might be stigmatizing. Already, the pocket clinics are seeing a 40% increase in testing volumes at health facilities, with the largest increase among men. Men have traditionally been some of the population's hardest to reach with HIV testing. And so what we're seeing with the pocket clinics is that 80% of those people that need to access treatment are now initiating treatment based on these HIV self-tests. What is actually driving that? And the remarkable feedback that we're getting from the Pocket Clinic app is that it's mainly due to speed and privacy. And one group in particular has identified privacy as the main incentive for use. 
it's usually the males that are answering that privacy is important. And anecdotally, when we visit these clinics, you know, the counselors will actually say, yes, the males, they prefer using that because they're not face-to-face with a woman. Um, there's a lot of different cultural practices. One of the user design focus groups, one of the stories that had come out was that uh, males specifically are scared of breaking down in front of a, a female. And this actually inhibits them from coming to the clinic. So the fact that they're dealing with a digital device like a tablet means that they feel, again, that, they're, that it's more private and more confidential. So the booths can help with confidentiality, but can they also help with the stigma attached to testing? I think it does decrease the stigma, but I think that that privacy, confidentiality, stigma part can be quite complex. So for instance, we don't want the booth to only be associated with HIV testing because then then that adds to stigma as well. So in response to that, a lot of our clients have asked us, you know, can we add TB screening? Can we add STI screening? Can we add um, diabetes module? So that, you know, if you're sitting outside a facility in this booth, it it can be that you're coming for any number of these things. But if you're known as the HIV uh, booth, that issue of stigma will raise its head again. What a fantastic idea. So coming back to our studio guest, Trevor Peter. Trevor, can I ask you, does some of what you've heard resonate with you in terms of the impact or implications that result from the stigma around HIV testing? It very much does, uh, Shafiq. Just you know, over the years, you know, stigma has been a significant barrier to access. And in the early days of HIV testing, the services were often provided in sort of one-size-fits-all. And may perhaps in the early days, either in some cases, didn't cater enough to concerns around stigma, or maybe over-catered went too far. And I've seen both scenarios. What I can say is that HIV diagnostics has evolved. And, and what is interesting, listening to the experiences of Vero Health, it continues to evolve. And that, I think, is the most important thing. We have to continue to listen more to uh, people's perspectives or preferences about how they would like to get tested or the conditions under which they can get. They get they're better able to access testing or conduct testing. And then design services that cater to that as far as we can. It includes a lot more differentiation, a lot more uh, user-centered design. And that's what I'm hearing uh, from these, this, the innovative processes that, and approaches that Avira is taking. The second element I find really quite interesting here is just the idea of setting up these testing sites, not just for HIV, but for other diseases. And that's so much in sync with where the world is going today where it needs to go to address diseases beyond HIV, not only for comorbidities of HIV. Um, there are many comorbidities that would require additional tests, but in addition, even for general population, it's useful if you can, oh, by the way, also screen for a few other infections, which may be quite common. So there's a, there's a benefit here that we can not only uh, destigmatize these testing sites and make them more approachable, more accessible, but we can also take the opportunity to do case finding and diagnose and help patients, help people test for a wider range of conditions that perhaps they, they would not have access to otherwise. So I think it's a great innovation. That's really inspiring. I mean, it could revolutionize the way we think about testing, not just for HIV, but for a, a whole host of other conditions. By putting the tools in, in the hands of people, in the hands of communities more directly, 
So we've looked a little at the impact of integrating a more digital approach for users. But what about the wider healthcare system? Here's Dr. Abrams again to tell us more about what impacts he has seen. In terms of the healthcare worker, a lot of the healthcare workers surprisingly are saying that they spend less time counseling. You know, I visited the, the KwaZulu-Natal projects and a lot of the counselors said, no, actually, I like it when I use Pocket Clinic because what she's, and what she's talking about is the standardization. She goes through a form, you know, the patient watches the video, she asks the questions and it's finished. And, you know, people were saying when they, when they have to do counseling on their own, it can be a rambling journey with that patient and they might take more time. And they also respond to the data feedback. So before, you know, they'd be capturing this data, but it'd take about three or four months for the, any of those targets to come back to them. Whereas now they can see, you know, they can see, oh, I'm Beth, I'm a counselor, I signed this patient on, I can see that they've they tested positive and I see that they started ARVs at a different clinic. They get that real-time feedback from, from the work that they're doing. The feedback from patients themselves, they're quite uh, forthright about their feedback. It's, it gives patients a voice. And that's the one thing that I really like. I, you know, I, I come in in the morning, I log on, I see these patient comments and, I, and we respond to them. I think... We need to start listening to that patient even before they come to the clinic. It's really interesting to look at the data so that you can understand what messaging to the patient so that your demand generation and your access to services increase. Then you come to the diagnosis. What was the experience of your diagnosis? What was your experience at this clinic? What was your experience with this healthcare worker? How can all of those things improve? You can't manage what you can't measure, and I don't think we've measured it properly. And in fact, in public health, there's, there's been, there have been some projects where, you know, they were given feedback and they decided to switch off that, that feedback mechanism because they didn't want those, they didn't want those outcomes to be known. And I think that's wrong. We're here to provide a service and you should act in service to patients. And that the first step to that is communication. I think the HIV self-testing kit, it's a very innovative, you're making it more convenient for the patient. Um, and you're taking services that were in the clinic, giving it more to the patient side and more to the self-care side. And anything that supports that is a good thing. It's just like a bank. Ten years ago, you had to go into your bank to make a deposit. Now you don't. That took a you know a generation or two to happen, but that's what happened. But there are certain services that don't have to be at facilities that can be moved to, closer to the patient for convenience and for better health outcomes. Feedback isn't just about data tracking. It's about understanding patient needs. So they're already seeing such an increase with reporting and initiating care. So I really like what Dr. Abrams is saying there, uh, both from the perspective of customizing the service or designing the service to meet patient needs, uh, as well as uh, providing, you know, being proactive about enabling patients, people to test themselves. Those are innovations that are really quite prevalent within the diagnostic world. By prevalent, I mean they're being discussed uh, and are being acted upon uh, quite actively. So different to how things were maybe you know, 10 or 20 years ago, uh, where it was very much in many ways the provider perspective or the pro provider-based design of services that dominated. And that was for obviously for practical purposes. But as we, as we move forward and as we've learned how to provide the base service, we really have to evolve. At the end of the day, it is a service. And a service is meant to support the healthcare of, of people, patients, they are the clients, they're the center of this. So patient-centered or people-centered design of services is so important. Uh, the democratization of testing and enabling people to take more control of um, when and how and where they test, not only for HIV, but for other diseases too, 
is very important. I'm a diagnostician. I run you know, reference laboratories. In just laboratories, I spend so much time on the provider side of that service. But I'm acutely aware, I think it's really important to increasingly change the dynamic here and have the providers really listening to people about how their service should be designed. There's so much innovation that can come here. So it is interesting that you know, even after 20 years of the HIV response and the diagnostics that has been implemented and all the innovation um, that has come through that, and the fact that HIV has led, in many ways, the global health world in terms of that innovation, we're still in many ways just beginning. We're still at an early stage of that evolution from the perspective of how we can advance it and keep it sustainable in the long term. I think the next phase... Uh, of this next era is very much about people-centered design and talking to communities about how best we can enable access to these uh, testing services. I think Dr. Abrams would uh, certainly agree with that. And for him, revolutionizing testing isn't just about making improvements to the delivery of the system. It's the opportunity to revolutionize the empowerment of patients. When we're talking about empowering patients, it's because a lot of the problems that I've seen in my experience is because there's an empower, a power imbalance, especially in public health, a power imbalance between the healthcare providers and patients. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to give patients enough information about their disease, about their outcomes, about their access and what their rights are so that they can, they can get the, the healthcare that they deserve. Thanks so much to Dr. Abrams for opening up about the learnings from the Pocket Clinic and the remarkable advances that they've been making using digital technology linked to diagnostics. If you want to know more about the work of Aviro Health or see the Pocket Clinic in action, head to the episode notes or go to our website, childrenandaids.org forward slash HIV reimagined for more information. So Trevor, uh, as we wrap up this conversation, we've heard that diagnostics is a field that is seeing uh, really quite rapid innovation and growth, and that the benefits that are being accrued are for the users, but also for healthcare providers. So in your view, tell us what you think are the most exciting recent innovations in diagnostics that are or that really could transform the global health space. Excellent question. And a topic, Shafiq, that I spend a lot of time thinking about. It's an exciting topic. You know, I think through COVID-19, there was a positive element to uh, the, all the effort that went into fighting the COVID-19 pandemic. And that is that there was a lot of innovation in diagnostic technology. There was this huge push to try and get tests out and create new tests, and make them more available. And that innovation provides opportunities for other diseases too. And so there are new technologies coming through. And I want to highlight technologies that often it's the type of technology and the design of the technology, particularly if it's designed to be used for the health systems within which we work. If that is done right, that can be transformational. There are, I would say, three types of technology that are quite interesting and worth just talking about very, very briefly. The first is, of course, self-test. I won't recap all the advantages there, but I think there's definitely enormous capacity that's been set up around the world in both the design and the manufacturing and the distribution of self-tests. And so I think we'll see in the coming years other self-tests popping up and being available in your pharmacy, available for testing in a number of different settings, as we heard today from Dr. Abrams, for a range of different diseases, both infectious diseases as well as uh, non-communicable diseases and so on. 
Secondly, we've spoken a lot today about PCR tests, but I think we're, we're actually now moving into the next generation of technologies where we will have simple disposable sort of dipstick type PCR. Those already exist. They were, I think, the, some of the first commercially available tests uh, of this type became available as a result of COVID-19. And there are now some tests that can do this for uh, sexually transmitted infections as well. But I think we're going to see a lot more assays, both, for example, the HIV and for TB and for HPV, uh, hepatitis and so on. So that the, basically the power of that huge instrumentation, the entire laboratory, and now basically miniaturized onto a little strip that doesn't require any equipment and can could potentially even be a self-test at some point. And so that technology, like, like I said, is ready here. It's simply now being expanded to other diseases. And that's going to be very, very important, very exciting. And not only for healthcare providers who can now, instead of having to collect a sample, send it to the laboratory and wait maybe days or weeks for the result to come back, could achieve that test within a matter of, of minutes, you know, within an hour with the patient in the room anywhere in any settings and potentially to be tested at home as well. It's very exciting uh, in the in the diagnostics world. And the third innovation, the move towards multiplex testing. And Dr. Abrams highlighted this as well in, in his in his comments about the service that Enviro is providing. And that not only HIV testing is available, but also they're looking to add other tests. But there is an increasing movement towards testing for multiple diseases at the same time. And in some ways, if you look at it, there are are large populations of patients that often have multiple conditions. They may have HIE, but at the same time, they've got hypertension, diabetes, which may often go undiagnosed. They may have hepatitis as well or a sexually transmitted infection. And so we're often focusing on the HIV and treating that. Uh, And these other diseases are not really being taken care of, and they contribute to poor health outcomes. And they become a problem. I consider that a diagnostic problem. And I think it's really important that when a patient comes in, that patient is treated as a whole, assessed for all the various conditions that may exist. Potentially a panel of tests are run, and then that is used to apply and provide all the necessary following care and treatments. This is important not only for taking care of people and making sure they have more holistic care. It's also important for disease surveillance, being on the lookout for epidemic-prone diseases. The running of panels of tests is really important, or simply testing for more diseases or more infections or more conditions at the same time when you have the opportunity of that person coming in or providing a sample. It's an opportunity to to be more efficient and to provide more care and diagnose more conditions. So that's that's a third innovation, which I think is probably going to be part of this this transformation. So self-testing, this point of care or disposable nuclear acid tests and, and sort of multiplex testing. Three big trends in diagnostics that, that we, I think we can see. They become more and more visible and more and more part, hopefully, the mainstream within diagnostics in the coming years. So Trevor, this podcast is all about doing things differently. I think you've already shared with us some of your insights into the future of diagnostics. But if you could reimagine one thing done differently when it comes to diagnostic innovation in the future, what would that one thing be? It's a good question. Um, Shafiq, I think when I think across all of the, the points and the issues we've discussed today and thinking more broadly, what comes to the top of all that is patient-centered testing. Really trying to design 
testing services, because as I mentioned earlier, they are a service, to try and design them in a way that enables people to access treatment and care. I've spoken about that earlier, and I won't repeat it, but I think that really stands out. And after many years of provider-based design that catered to and enabled and made more efficient and easier the way in which healthcare providers could provide the service, I think we have to flip that around now and uh, spend more time listening uh, to patients and to communities and have support that design, listen to their perspectives and their preferences to understand better how to expand the service. Trevor, thank you for that uh, that incredible insight. I, I feel like we've gone full circle, you know, from the lab and the complex technology and the challenges of of making that technology work, all the way around to self tests and multiplex tests that can screen and scan for a whole range of, of different settings and that are, that are patient controlled and patient led. So you don't even have to be in a facility necessarily to be able to access this level of, of testing. Um, that's certainly been an, an incredible uh, transformation. Trevor, it's been great having you with us uh, and learning from your remarkable insights. Thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome, Shafiq. Thank you. So we've heard today about the incredible journey of diagnostics from laboratory-based testing to rapid tests, and now to multiplex tests and self-tests that put the power of diagnosis into the hands of the client. It's been a remarkable evolution, and we've had a wonderful guest, Trevor Peter, to talk all this through. In the next episode, we're going to be talking about MMD, multi-month dispensing of drugs. And we've got a really interesting conversation lined up for you between a health worker and a mother that she's been working with. In the meantime, check out childrenandaids.org forward slash HIV reimagined for more information and links about this episode and all of the other episodes that we have available for you on telemedicine, mental health and youth services. Thank you for listening to HIV Reimagined. Be sure to subscribe to know when our new episodes go live and also join our email list serve at childrenandaids.org forward slash HIV Reimagined. Please do leave us reviews and ratings. We'd love to hear from you on what episodes you might like to hear in the future. I've been your host, Dr. Shafiq Isaji, and I look forward to having more Conversations for Change. So until the next time, goodbye for now.